If you're a North Korean news aficionado like me, you probably came across the NK News website well before discovering the podcast. It's an incredible source that gets you behind the headlines to give you what's probably the most reliable and evidence-based news on North Korea. Every business day, you'll get between 5 to 10 articles that provide exclusive news, detailed analysis, and informed opinions. And guess what? Each week, they send you forward-looking week-ahead briefings and news alerts to keep you ahead of the curve. There's more. NK News members also get special reader-only benefits, access to exclusive events and online conferences, and perpetual access to our archive of podcasts. And here's the best part. You can get a $100 discount on your annual subscription with the code PODCAST. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org discount. That's nknews.org discount. Welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslutz. Today it is Tuesday, June 6, 2023, and that is uh, Memorial Day in Korea or something like it. Joining me in the studio are three members of the NK News reporting team to discuss some of the best and most interesting stories of the last month. Remember to review this episode, share it with colleagues and friends, and even people who don't know about us, especially people who don't know about, about us. Follow NK News Org and all of us on Twitter. Now, to introduce our three guests today, joining me here in the studio, as I said, we have Jongmin Kim, James Fretwell, and Shreyas ready to go through some of the big stories of last month. Welcome on the show, everyone. Good morning. Thank you very much. Happy okay. to be here. James, let's start with you. As usual, you put together the Month in Review, uh, which is a wonderful uh, PDF document for our NK Pro subscribers, in which you take us through the major stories covered in the month of May. Let's start by looking at some summits. South Korean President Yoon song yeol and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida met in Seoul on May 7th, what was the uh, the result of that or what was significant about it? Well, I, I think m more than the result itself, probably the significance of the summits was that it came shortly after Yoon's visit to Tokyo. And, um, you know, it just fits into the general pattern of improving relations between South Korea and Japan. Since Yoon's come to office, he's really been pushing this idea that uh, we need to, South Korea needs to work with Japan in order to uh, respond to North Korea's weapons program. Obviously, relations fell apart under the previous administration. So mm. that's, the, that's the big trend that's going on here. Jongwin, these things tend to often be cyclical with a, uh, a president from the conservative side improving relations with Japan, followed by a president from the Minju Democratic side who uh, neglects relations or rather exacerbates uh, tensions with Japan. Is this the way it's going to be? Are we going to see this uh, cycle continue, do you think? Or, or are we actually in a sustainably better phase with Japan? Well, it is kind of cyclical in a way, but still, even comparing Yoon's approach to former conservative president's yeah. approach on Japan here, I think he went a step further than before. And I think if Japan corresponds in a manner that South Koreans will find persuasive, it will stay. But if not, uh, when the administration changes, I believe that it will change back again. Okay, there is that danger. James, back to you. So um, were there any significant takeaways from uh, Prime Minister Kishida's visit to Seoul? Did he uh, respond in a way that, that Korean people uh, found appealing? Well, I think he responded in somewhat in, in that way, um, actually, later at the, at the G7 in Hiroshima, the two leaders uh, Yoon attended to that. South Korea is not part of the G7, but it gets right. invited to 
come along and um, sort of an expanded uh, G7, right? Right. Yeah. So the two leaders went to uh, visit this memorial for the atomic bomb victim, the Korean mm. victims of the atomic bomb, of which there were many that sometimes gets forgotten by history. Yeah. And obviously, a big part of the relationship between South Korea and Japan is the historical tensions. That's often why relations fall apart mm. because of Japan's colonial rule of the peninsula from 1910 to 1945 so to see the two leaders go on a uh, on a visit to this kind of memorial that has to do this uh, period is significant mm, okay and it also, also while president yun was in uh, in japan in hiroshima for the expanded g7 meeting he and prime minister kishida had a trilateral meeting with uh, u.s president joe biden on the sidelines what came out of that so according to statements, um, you know, the, the three leaders pledge, as they always do, to continue to work to expand uh, trilateral ties and that they're going to work together against the growing threats from North Korea. But I think, frankly, the, the major headline news from the, the summits have, have come a few weeks before then. For example, the, the summit in Washington between Yoon and Biden, where we saw the um, nuclear consultative group come out. So that was the that was the big one there. So of course, any l- meeting that involves the three leaders of the countries, they're going to make some progress on matters. But it it doesn't seem like there are any major major takeaways from that summit in uh, from that meeting in Hiroshima. Okay, so we have to be careful not to place a inordinate emphasis on on summitry, right? I mean, uh, things go on as as usual, and then they have these meetings, and then things go on as usual with some course correction or uh, minor adjustments. Is that more or less the case? I think that's fair, yeah. But, um, you know, it also sends the message that uh, even though North Korea is launching all of these missiles Mm. and, you know, posing this threat to South Korea, that the US and Japan have its back, and that they're not going to back away if if things do get ugly. I think that's a one of the important messages that all of these mm. summits send. Okay, that is an important message. Jongmin, a, a quick interjection from you. Is, uh, what's the South Korean perception of how President Yoon is doing at summits? Is he, you know, at the start of his term, he was kind of gaff prone. He kind of did some things that came off a bit awkward. But is he seen as doing well with his, uh, sort of on the, on the international stage with the world leaders? I think most of the first year um, summits led to actually a decrease in his popularity in mm. many cases. For yeah. example, after the hot mic incident. Uh, that was in Washington, uh, well, in, in America. That was, I think, sidelines of UN, wasn't it? Right, in New York when he said something about right, the, it was, uh, it was the, in the, the US, US Congress. Um, it was in the US and it was at a certain event. Mm. Um, but especially after the state visit to the US, however, it seems like the popularity either stays or increases slightly. So it seems it's getting, the perception's getting better. It seems okay. Like. Uh, and then, James, back to you. There was also a, uh, a comment, a rare comment, that the uh, North Korean Vice Minister Park Sung-gil made about the possibility of North Korea holding talks with Japan, which hasn't happened for a long time. So um, what was the statement? And, and do, uh, do direct talks between North Korea and Japan look any more likely now? They haven't happened for a long time, and I don't think they're going to happen for a long time still. Um, yeah, I think a lot of, the, you know, sometimes statements uh, come out about a lot of things to do with North Korea, like we, we should end the Korean War or have talks with whoever. I mean, you know, every side is in theory open to all these things, but they have to be according to their conditions, right? North Korea was basically saying that, yes, we could hold talks with Japan. This mm. was in response to comments made by Japanese Prime Minister Kishida 
that um, he'd be open for talks with Kim Jong-un in order to resolve the issue of citizens that were abducted during the um, 1970s and 80s. This is a really big issue for Japan and even prime ministers before Kushida have also said, you know, we'd be open to talks with Kim Jong-un to resolve this issue. North Korea was actually saying, yeah, sure, we're open to talks as long as, you know, we kind of move beyond this abductions issue. So actually, I think the big takeaway from both sides saying that they're open to talks yeah. is actually that the talks aren't going to happen because of the conditions. And am I misremembering, or was it actually uh, almost 20 years ago that Japanese Prime Minister Tunichiro Koizumi was the last leader to have direct talks with North Korea on precisely that issue of abducted Japanese citizens, and there really hasn't been much movement since then? Basically, yeah. I mean, um, you know, there are, it's, it's, it's such a big issue. There's a dozen or so um, abductees that Japan says North Korea did take. North mm. Korea disputes some of them, um, some of these cases. It returned a few of the abductees. But then, you know, also on top of this, Japan doesn't rule out the uh, abduction in the cases of 873 other missing people. Gosh. So even if the the two sides in North Korea did agree to um, cooperate more on this issue, I mean, this is going to take a, a lot of work to resolve. So I don't see any progress being made on this anytime soon. Okay. Uh, thank you, James. Uh, Chongmin, anyone who lived in Korea, in South Korea in the 80s, 90s or noughties will remember monthly civil defense drills. Uh, President Moon Jae-in suspended them uh, some years ago, and now as of mid-May, they're back. So what is a civil defense drill? What, what does it look like? There are actually different types and levels of civil defense drills. But when it comes to nationwide civil defense drill itself, it's basically um, practicing evacuation or PCR, um, uh, not PCR, CPR, uh, CPR sorry. Uh, so resuscitation, <laughs> cardiopulmonary <laughs> resuscitation. Uh, yes. Uh, but also this year, what was different was that sometimes in the civil defense drill, the, what's included is the anti-air raid mm. drill. So that one's, that one's been a while, but the civil defense drill itself, the last time it happened was 2019. So it was basically an, up until COVID. Right. But the air raid, um, anti-air raid drill, it's been a while. Okay, so going back to the evacuation part of the, of the drill, it's um, everybody get out of your cars, park the car by the side of the road, and then seek shelter somewhere. And mm. If you're walking on the street, you have to go to a basement or something like that, right? Right. There are, uh, the interior ministry sets certain buildings, basements, subway stations as the shelter. Right. Um, so there are signs in front of those buildings. So you mm. have to basically find them and go to the shelter when it comes to anti-air raid drills. But when it comes to just civil defense drill, it's usually just that the siren turns on and everyone just go to the basement for a while and then comes back, basically. Uh-huh, okay. And, and there are some people out there uh, directing, you know, uh, traffic and, and pedestrians uh, wearing the, uh, the civil defense drill jackets and an armband of some sort. Right. The, the, but the civil defense drill that we are discussing right now, it, yeah. was a, it was a picture that we saw maybe a decade ago. Mm. But now what happened this time is that um, civil defense drill that happened early May yeah. is the one that the government led for the public sector and the schools. So it's not for the private sector. So oh, we I wouldn't see. see the traffic police um, regulating the regulating the cars or private company workers like us mm -hmm. um, having to do that. It's more like just the teachers, students, and oh. the public officials doing it. So, so people went to visit certain public places like the schools or uh, uh, 
uh, or government offices and, and they did a drill in that location only? No, no, no. It's more like the target was only the public sector rather oh. than the private sector. So basically, mm. people outside the public sector, private company workers yep. or those who were not students, they didn't do the drill. Huh. That's an interesting decision. So it's kind of like not really a full nationwide drill then, if not yes, everyone's we, doing it. It's not nationwide. It's more like nationwide public sector yes. drill. And Yoon did mention that he wants to gradually expand this to the private sector. Ah. But it's quite tricky because different companies have different schedules. Yep. Um, so it would have been difficult for the government to actually decide to do all everyone in the country basically okay and uh, and they were off during corona is that why they're they're back now because corona is no longer an issue um i think mostly i yeah. think there was some politicization going on mm -hmm. in the presidential statement saying that because we were uh, conceding for peace purposes for north korea we didn't do the civil defense drills i don't think that's true because the civil defense drill itself happened until 2019 yeah. until before covid but it is true that anti-air raid drill is quite sensitive, and mm -hmm. it was suspended after uh, Moon came in. Okay, and the difference with the, the anti-air raid drill is what you... you um, what's it, people have to go into a, a shelter it's, longer? Is that what it is? Or? Well, I think the scenario is different. The scenario said North Korea attacked us yes, um, from the more air. directly. Right. But civil defense drill itself, it's not only against war situations, but ah. also on disasters, Natural disasters. earthquakes. Okay, earthquakes, tsunamis, mm -hmm. things like that. Okay. Uh, for a long time, uh, even when we had civil defense drills, it felt like people were not taking them seriously enough. You had people not getting out of their cars or pedestrians ignoring orders to go to a, uh, to a shelter, to a depot. Uh, in other words, people had become complacent after seven decades of no hot war. Are we expecting to see that change now? It seems like people did become complacent and with that also a lack of information when i was in elementary school i think it was regular the civil defense drill mm -hmm. but uh, i also remember that the civil defense drill is not only just about evacuation but about also a couple of hours of courses from the teachers uh. on what you have to do when there's a disaster or war gather water or mm. uh, you have to put this into your backpack mm -hmm. um when you are moving um hide like this so there are courses that were given when I was younger, I don't think that's happening anymore. Ah. Um, so alongside complacency, uh, with a lot of exposure to just North Korea missile urgence from Yonhap every day yeah. for a while last year, it seems people got either exhausted or just indifferent about the idea. Right. And whenever we see the missile alerts, something actually doesn't really happen for people's daily lives. So, and also sirens after COVID and Itaewon crowd crush. There has been a lot you mean of on, on the phone. Right? On the phone, the phone there was... has been a lot of alerts every few minutes, mm -hmm. so people got too used to yep. getting notifications. Yeah, that's the uh, the law of diminishing returns there. And then, of course, on the morning of Wednesday, the thirty first of May at six thirty a.m., we had another air raid siren. But this was not a civil defense drill. This was a real air raid siren. Siren coupled for those who lived in Seoul, at least, with a uh, text message and cell phone alert. Uh, blaring from the phone, telling people to prepare to seek shelter. Chad and I talked a little bit about that in the last podcast episode, but please sketch an overview for us now that it's all over and we understand it better. Well, basically in the morning, there were different titles of notifications that went out. For Koreans, it was noted as basically to seek evacuation and seek shelter. Mm. In English, it was named wartime alert yeah. or presidential alert, but it did not seem like the president made a, that notification himself or anything, but it's I, I figured that it's more like the name of the system. Kukamang is called presidential, ah. nationwide 
network system network, is called. Yeah. That's why it was presidential mm. alert. But anyways, because it said wartime alert for 22 minutes, I believe mm-hmm. um, a lot of there was a lot of freak out in the morning. People were, I guess, in the first few minutes, they thought it was just another type of those notifications that they get and as a morning call from sometimes. But because it explained that there's a um, there's a, this is not a drill. But after 22 minutes, Seoul City said that it was actually erroneously sent notification, frustrating a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Shreyas, did you panic? Uh, well, I actually was not in Seoul at the time, so no, I so ha- you didn't get the message. No, I have. Are you were safely on the island fastness of Jeju, weren't you? Oh yes, and yeah. I was mildly confused as to why there was an alert in Seoul when, if the satellite launch had succeeded, it would probably pass closer to where I was, and mm. there was no alert there. Yeah, for I think for us reporters part of it is like if there's a wartime alert and there's evacuation we have to write it so i don't think uh, i think none of us was trying to seek shelter but we immediately started writing yeah but another part was that we already knew that the satellite launch was coming and we knew the Mm. trajectory so we we knew that maybe something could go wrong but I, i think we sort of had unspoken confidence that we wouldn't die yeah um but for just general people it wasn't like that just about that trajectory, it wasn't actually going over South Korean land, was it? So it was going over the sea, but there were there are obviously islands in the sea between right. uh, South Korea and China. So effectively, it was there was a chance it would pass over them. Mm-hmm. But these are Pyongyangdo, Yeongpyongdo, yes. and little Yeongpyongdo, exactly. and the other ones, yeah, the five yeah. West Sea islands. Yes, but on the whole, there wasn't any real risk that it would pass over the South Korean mainland unless right. something went horribly wrong with the launch. Right, and that was why it was so interesting that the messages came to people who were in Seoul, which is more inland, but didn't go to some people in Incheon and, and people in Gyeonggi, which you've got to get through to get to Seoul. So what went wrong? Well, it seems like uh, it, it seems the Interior Ministry and the Seoul City is still um, quarreling with each other uh-huh. on who sent the order. Yeah. Um, Seoul claimed that either military or Interior Ministry ordered them, and neither side the um, it was actually related to the Seoul metropolitan area. So it seems like the system had a glitch. Yeah. Um, but there are different um, uh, uh, perceptions on these. Um, some people say that even if it was wrong, it's better to get the notification, as some people um saying, because it's better safe than sorry. Right. Uh, well, that, yeah. Right. But, but, but some people are saying if you consistently show these systems failing people will lose trust in the notification and if there's actual war mm. it will be very slow for people to um, respond to and also for Kyungi citizens there were a lot of people on twitter saying that something like we're actually closer to go to Kaesong than Seoul and why didn't we get any notifications yeah yeah, yeah that's, that's certainly a fair point there uh, but yeah, I mean, well, how are you going to get a, a city of 10 to 12 million people to either seek shelter or evacuate if something does happen? That's another question for another day. But uh, all right. Thank you, Jongmin. Uh, Shreyas, turning to you, you wrote an analysis piece for NK Pro entitled North Korea Primed for Quick Rebound After Satellite Launch Failure. So we're still on the satellite. What is the big takeaway here? Well, I think while the headlines uh, are all focused on North Korea failing to put a satellite into orbit uh, and essentially crash, uh, having the vehicle crash down in the sea, Mm. the big takeaway is that they actually did a lot better than people would expect. And certainly there's a lot uh, that they can build on. So they are well set to have another launch, perhaps sooner than people expect. Ah. Okay, so does that suggest that Kim Jong-un might perhaps not be too upset that this particular one failed because it sets up a better chance that the next one will succeed? 
Well, I, he would still certainly be upset. I think any failure does not usually reflect well on the leadership, mm -hmm. and they don't usually admit to these failures. Although in this case, they did put out a report more focused on the more aimed at the outside world, but at least admitting to it. So you can be certain that he has gone back to the space agency, gone back to the uh, engineers and researchers and officials, and said, "We can't cannot afford another failure. Yeah, you cannot afford another y failure." Yes. Now, there must be costs to a failed satellite launch like that. And I don't just mean economic costs, because it's always difficult to, uh, to measure things in monetary terms inside North Korea, but also just opportunity costs and, and cost of resources. So can you talk to that a little bit? Yes, I think, as you said, it is hard to measure costs like that in absolute terms, mm. particularly when, North when it comes to North Korea, which has a habit of cobbling together missiles out of nothing. So certainly they are uh, quite capable of doing that even with the satellites and with uh, space launch vehicles. Uh, but it is a huge opportunity cost, as you mentioned, any failed satellite launches, any successful satellite launches, and every attempt represents quite the drain on North Korean resources amid right. economic problems. Because you've not only lost a, a missile, but you've lost a satellite, and they are quite, what, precision instruments? Uh, you can't just build one overnight from some, some hobby glue and some balsa wood, you know, you take... Jongwon, you've got a comment. Uh, not to mention that they lose it. Uh, South Koreans may salvage it. So that's another problem for them. Right. I, I did see some images that South Korea were quick to get parts of the missile. Do they have the satellite too? So to the best of our knowledge, at the moment, they are still actually conducting uh, salvage operations in the sea. Wow. Uh, and it was mostly a part of the rocket itself. But uh, Jongmin has more details. Right. Uh, on the day of, in the morning, it, the military was actually uh, very good, very quick yep. in, in finding it and recovering it. But the issue was after they took the photo and sent it to journalists, they yes. it, it fell back into the sea. No. Okay. Um, and it turned because it turns out it wasn't just a few meters of the rocket part, but it turns out it was half of the rocket. Oh. So it was too heavy. So it fell. And then the weather got bad. The water current became too quick so the military lost it and they're still working on it but they i saw reports that if they do find it they will do a joint investigation with the u.s side gosh okay uh, uh, shreyas why is pyongyang so keen to get a satellite up well this is one of kim jong-un's top goals for uh, the country's military de development he has been prioritizing it since the ruling party's eighth plena uh, eighth congress in January 2021. So they've definitely pushed the idea of having a military spy satellite, mm. which they say is to monitor their enemy's movements. It's an essential tool that they say for the country's defense as the US and its allies uh, increase their own military activities in the region. So they frame it as a, a necessary response to what the US is doing. Right. Now, was uh, Seoul's re successful recent launch of a Nuri rocket and satellite believed to be related to North Korea launching its rocket when maybe it wasn't ready or the conditions weren't right? Well, South Korea's uh, National Intelligence Service certainly does think so. They uh, frame, they said that uh, North Korea appears to have rushed its launch just because of the pressure of a, a successful Nuria launch. Mm. And certainly there would be a certain degree of competition and North Korea would not want to fall far behind South Korea on this front. It's probably not the only factor, mm. but you one cannot help think that uh, the success of the Nuri would have weighed heavily on the decision to advance the launch. I seem to recall that we spoke here at uh, one of these uh, roundtables a month or two ago 
about how North Korea wanted to get the satellite up before the end of April. I think they had a kind of a deadline there before the end of April, right? So in a way, it may not have been rushing. Well, actually, so there, there was some uh, confusion about the wording there. What they had ah. initially said was they wanted to have the, re- the satellite complete or ready in some ways by the end of April, but that did not necessarily mean for launch. Got it. And essentially, when Kim Jong-un visited the space agency in April, at that point, they said the satellite is complete. The satellite is ready. Right. And in May, they took it a step further and said it is ready for loading. So mm-hmm. the uh, as far as they're concerned, uh, certainly in terms of state media propaganda, they said they had fulfilled their goal. It was just the next step that we weren't sure of until now. Now, Shreyas, in your analogy, you uh, you write that this is something that might motivate Seoul, Tokyo, and Washington to increase cooperation on missile defense. Can you say more on that? Well, to some extent, this is already happening. We have seen, for example, just this past weekend, the defense ministers of the three countries announced that uh, by the end of the year, they will have a system ready to uh, to share missile launch data in real time. Yeah. And this is certainly part of the ongoing efforts to strengthen trilateral cooperation between the countries to deal with North Korea's missile threats in general, but certainly the space, just the fact that North Korea is also now taking that threat to space uh, will serve as an added factor. Has there already been evidence to suggest that uh, real-time data sharing and radar sharing took place this time? Uh, no, it's uh, not yet set up at this Got point. It. Ah, there's yeah. still a setup process. Yeah, okay. so they're targeting the end of the year. Right, so that it's not like they're just sending emails or WhatsApp messages with photographs or something. Okay. Attention, North Korea portfolio professionals. Are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news-gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top-notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org/professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org/professionals. James, let's revisit a theme that we have touched on many times since January 2020, namely, when will North Korea open its borders again, allowing people to travel back and forth? Last month, we saw some mixed signals. Run us through those signals, please. There are a lot of signals, yeah. I mean, um, media's been reporting for a while, you know, that you'll sometimes get particular outlets saying that tourism is going to open in, yes. uh, you know, XYZ uh, weeks. From, um, from two unnamed Chinese tourist agencies. That made yeah. me skeptical. You know, the, those are what they are. But also, um, there were lots of interesting news in May about North Korea potentially competing in international sports competitions, yeah. um, which it's not been doing during the pandemic. Now, this is important because you presume that if North Korean athletes are going to leave the country, mm-hmm. then I guess they're, they're going to come back in, right? Yep. 
and that means that North Korea would happen uh, have to open its borders, which it's not been doing even for its own citizens. Right. I mean, the uh, no, any North Koreans who were caught outside the country, um, not caught, that's the wrong word, uh, who were stuck outside the country when the borders closed in January 2020, most of them, all of them, are uh, still there, right? Right. As far um, as we know. Yeah, as far as, as far as the world knows, there have only been a, really a handful of people that have entered the country in the last three years. Right. Now, what's happening with the Russian embassy in Pyongyang? Because that, that was kind of a, a counter signal to suggest that maybe borders aren't opening again. Right. So you would think that the, you know, the Russian embassy in North Korea would know if the borders mm. were going to open. And yet, if that is the case, you know, if there is an imminent border opening, well, the, the Russians are sending more um, of their personnel home. So that's one sign that perhaps, you know, the, the border isn't going to open anytime soon. And um, also, we were looking at uh, China's new ambassador to North Korea. Who, yes, there was um, a special exception made for China. What was it? Yep. So the embassy's website did describe his entry a little while ago as a special case. Mm. So Wang Yajun, he was the, uh, the, the first known person to enter the, the country for, for a number of years. And when he entered the country to uh, start his work in North Korea, lots of people were thinking, oh, well, maybe this is a sign that uh, more diplomats and then potentially, you know, even businessmen and, and, and business people and, and tourists will be able to enter the country. Uh, it doesn't seem like this is the case. Did Ambassador Wang go in by himself or was he with an entourage? Uh, he was with a couple of other people as mm -hmm. well, but it wasn't like a you know, this this huge group of people. Yeah. It, it was, again, just a, a small handful. What's the World Health Organization said about the status of the coronavirus pandemic? So at the beginning of May, the WHO said that it's, um, you know, COVID is now an established and ongoing health issue, which no longer constitutes a public health emergency of international concern. Mm. And this is important because a number of sources told NK Pro that the North Korean embassies had been monitoring yeah. the WHO for new developments. And so perhaps, you know, we were thinking, well, if the WHO changes its attitude on the pandemic, then maybe North Korea will follow suit. This hasn't happened yet. And now that North Korea has been elected to sit on the executive board of the World Health Organization, could this have any bearing on things? You know, that that remains to be seen. We haven't seen uh, any signs of that yet, no. Mm -hmm. Okay, but it is interesting that they are so uh, actively engaging uh, an international organization like the WHO through their uh, uh, mission in Geneva. I suppose so, but, you know, all the same factors remain at play. Uh, it You know, it's, it's unknown the scale of the vaccination campaign in the country. It yeah. does seem that some people in certain areas, perhaps near a border or trade areas or in the capital have been vaccinated. But, you know, it's, it's a real unknown. And North Korea is going to be very worried about a, a huge outbreak of the virus again. And you've also got to remember, you know, perhaps from North Korea's perspective, is it actually even that eager to reopen to the rest of the world? Defector numbers have massively dropped since mm -hmm. closing its borders. It's very difficult for outside countries and uh, even us, us uh, working in the media to know what's going on in the country. So from North Korea's perspective, there has actually been some uh, uh, wins 
from um, closing their borders to COVID-19. If and when the border does open, are there signs that there would be long and uh, onerous periods of quarantine for people travelling into or coming back to North Korea? I think it would probably seem that way at the moment, yeah. Um, So the Russian ambassador said recently that any new employees uh, in the future would have to go uh, undergo quarantine on the North Korean side of the border for one week. Mm. And then NK Pro reporting in December, uh, based on exclusive ground-level photos, suggested that um, North Korea has built isolation wards near the border, uh, potentially to quarantine incoming travellers. And people can find those exclusive ground-level photos on our website, nknews.org, right? Indeed. Okay, thank you. Uh, Chongmin, uh, James just mentioned the low numbers of defections or refugees arriving from North Korea. In fact, they've been down to a level unseen since before the 1990s famine, uh, but now they're up again. Can you tell us more? Well, starting with the first quarter of 2023, it slightly went up. It could be related to just general global um, COVID-19 regulation loosening up a little bit. So people who were already in other countries, such as China, perhaps coming into South Korea, or even North Korean border uh, crossing becoming a little bit easier, maybe. But it's, it's unclear, it seems. But it is up slightly. And then the, uh, the uh, National Intelligence Service here in South Korea gave some follow-up detail about what made some recent arrivals choose to come south. Uh, what was that? Uh, there's a joint investigation going on. I, I believe it's wrapping up soon. Uh, there, was a, there were multiple people on a boat who came through West Coast um, crossing the Northern Limit Line NLL. And, and they testified to the authorities here that, that they were family by blood or marriage. Mm-hmm. So it seems like it was one family. Okay. Uh, and they were explaining their reasons for defection, um, saying they were disillusioned about Kim Jong-un regime during the COVID regulation mm. and also that they admired South Korean society looking at TV shows. Okay, so these are possibly people who have moved south for ideological reasons rather than simply um, we're looking for a better life or uh, could be both. But could be but both. imagine being a defector who is faced with South Korean authorities yeah. and they would want to say that to yeah. South Koreans. You said a joint investigation. Who are the the parties of the the joint investigation? Sorry, a joint as an in interagency. So usually ah, so it's it, it, usually it's NIS. If if it's a soldier, sometimes that's military, ah. or if the military jurisdiction of the region is involved, sometimes it's also unification ministry as well. Okay, and they said, uh, as I recall, that they were watching South Korean TV programs, right? Right. They said something um, related to that, according to the NIS, but they didn't explain which South Korean TV programs. Ah, but it wants is to know, of course, were they watching Squid right. Game or Extraordinary Attorney Wu? Or Free advertisement, if they mention the TV name. Ah, yeah. Well, exactly. That's what it would be an advertisement. What's the intake procedure for defectors? They're not simply let loose on the next day after the investigation, are they? No, they're not. And it really depends on uh, what level they are and um, you which... You sort of where they come in the North Korean... Songbun in hierarchy. social hierarchy, mm-hmm. and also which route that they take. Mm. Um, in this case, the West Sea or East Sea defection through a boat is very rare and it difficult yeah. compared to other routes. Seas can be rough. There's a lot of rocks. And if you haven't got a good motor, some of these boats don't have an engine. Mm-hmm. They don't have oil in the petrol fuel. Right. The they have yeah. to risk a lot of things. And uh, especially when it's border defection, South Korean authorities um, put a lot lot of more effort into mm. investigation to make sure that they're not spies. Mm. But in general, usually they go into the 
um, the investigation and interrogation by the intelligence agencies here, not just because they want to make sure they're not spies, but because they carry important information that are the raw data. They're not tainted by South Uh, Korean society experience. So they do that first, and then they go to the resettlement house called Hanawon. Hanawon, okay. How long is that uh, their stay at Hanawon these days? Is that one month or three? Not sure, okay. Uh, then towards the end of May, a dead North Korean man's body was found. Was he believed to be a defector who didn't succeed? Well, according to the details that I've heard so far, it, it is most likely that it was a defection that's gone wrong. The, a sty- it seems like a few styrofoams were tied to the man's body. Mm-hmm. Um, As flotation devices? L- most likely, but it seemed like they were ad hoc uh, measures that the man um, attempted. Mm-hmm. Um, it, seemed, it, it was Kanghua coastal area rather other than river, mm-hmm. um, and it seems like the man drowned. Was he a soldier? Likely not. Okay, so we don't have any evidence that he was wearing a military uniform. It appears he was carrying drugs. Is that unusual? Yes, it is very unusual. It's, it was, or at least, unusual that it came. Uh, the the public got to know about it. The mm. media got to know about it. It was seventy grams of meth uh, tied to his leg. I'm not entirely sure how you tie meth to your leg but well, it's perhaps in a package that that was what it sounded like like, like yeah. you could strap a knife to your uh, to your calf yeah you something know, your like trousers. that but uh, we know that methamphetamines go is produced in and is used in north korea we've done articles about that before as pilopon or hiropon which is the uh, the japanese trade name when it was invented back during world war Two. Mm-hmm. but 70 grams it seems like quite a lot given that one dose is less than one gram usually is there a suspicion that he was trying to smuggle it here for sale well, the joint investigation did not mention their assessment of what the drug was for, but 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 thinking about it logically, like if you're a defector trying to go to another country, it could have been meant as a maybe something like a seed money that he could mm-hmm. start off Some his life capital. with. Yeah. yeah. So an entrepreneur, but uh, sadly he didn't make it here. Is Kanghua Island or the Han River estuary a common place for? Dead North Koreans to wash up? Yes, for different reasons, but mostly during flood time, which is coming up soon. Mm. Um, last year, there were multiple, multiple cases, such as a woman wearing Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il badge and multiple children as well. Oh, dear. Okay, that is very sad. What usually happens to people like this poor man who are found dead on the coast? Well, what happens first is autopsy, first of all. and um, To determine the cause of death? Yes, and also investigation at the jurisdiction where the body was found, such as a military base nearby to see the CCTV, um, to see mm. if anything like a camera caught right. um, the body flowing from North Korea towards the south because it's very difficult to figure out who's North Korean or not. Yeah. But if it's concluded uh, reasonably that this must be a North Korean, uh, South Korean side unification ministry sends mm-hmm. a notice to the North Korean side to the United Front Department usually um, asking if they want the repatriation of the body. If the North Koreans remain silent or they reject uh, the province or the city that found that has a jurisdiction over the body cremates it. Mm-hmm. But if North Koreans say yes to repatriation, uh, th- it's done through Panmunjom. So what's likely to happen to this man then? Uh, for the stage. past few cases, North Koreans remain silent. Mm-hmm. They did not respond to any calls from Unification Ministry. And uh, not to mention that the hotline is still the suspended. Hotline, yeah. The UNC one is alive, I believe. Ah. But the inter-Korean hotline under the uh, South Korean military and the Unification Ministry, North Koreans are not responding to it. Mm. And if it remains so, probably Kanghua will cremate it. Okay. And then his ashes will be scattered or interred here. Okay. Wow. Thank you, Jongmin. Shreyas, tell us how North Korean hackers uh, have targeted our very own Chad O'Carroll. 
Well, uh, <laughs> North Korean hacker group, which uh, security experts have uh, identified as the notorious Kim Suki group, mm. uh, sent a mail to him as part of a wider spear phishing campaign targeting experts associated with Korean Peninsula affairs in order to gain information that can help them mount precision-based attacks on systems. And so as part of this, they essentially, uh, someone posing as a student got in touch with him. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a student at Yonsei University, got okay. in touch with him from the rather suspicious email with ending in the domain yonsei.lol. Mm. First giveaway wow. that this was perhaps not legitimate. Right. And asked him for help with uh, reviewing her thesis. And so in the, uh, I think... They also offered to pay him, which is another red flag. Mm. But in cryptocurrency, they didn't say. But it's basically, in, they didn't uh, specify a dollar amount. So mm. I think essentially the idea was, let's see if uh, what will work. And yeah, in the end, security experts were able to find that it was uh, very much part of a phishing campaign. All right. So now this plan had a lot of complexity in that there were a lot of faked parts. There wasn't just the weird email address with the dot lol, but there was also uh, actually getting going to the trouble of of uh, copying a thesis from somewhere and making that into a document, and then you know there were there was a fake name, and there was a lot of parts designed to gain someone's trust. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, so from what we can make out, it starts right from the initial email itself, which mm. was fairly well written by uh, certainly by North Korean hacker standards. In the past, the poor language was often a giveaway, but in the past few years, there has been an improvement, and this email in particular stood out as being of particularly high quality. Mm. And then you go into the document, which it actually appears to have a lot of original content in it. Mm. So it, it, there were questions. How did they put together an entire thesis that appears to be fairly original? That and Was so it footnoted? I do not recall, but it was uh, fairly detailed, mm. certainly. And um, Could this it be ChatGPT being put to use? That is, so we spoke to experts about it, and they believe that it is certainly possible. It's also possible, they said, that the hackers could have simply hired a particularly proficient English speaker, but the amount of original content mm. and the drastic improvement in quality certainly could hint at the use of tools like ChatGPT. Now, a piece of malware secreted inside a Word document, it, it's new to me. Is this an unusual thing? Uh, it's actually fairly common. Huh. Uh, so quite often, they will hackers will send documents or links that could help download malware, which then can, which contain macros of sorts, which once you open or close a doc, uh, depending on the document, it could go. they could activate and allow the hackers to gain control of the system. And in South Korea, Sometimes they use uh, the more local HWFP files as mm. a lure instead. Really? Okay. Wow. That, it's amazing that North Koreans have uh, managed to crack the code and use HWFP files because I can't even open one on my computer. So uh, well done, North Koreans there. What was the payoff that North Korea hoped for? How was this scheme designed to work? I mean, let's say Chad opened this, uh, this Word document, got the macro malware in there. What, what were they hoping to do? Steal money from him or shut down NK News? Well, there are lots of different motives that often... Uh, are behind these attacks and quite often one of them is information and in this particular case the malware was designed to effectively perform reconnaissance on the system mm. which made it a particularly new variant and the idea was to try and figure out what how does the system run what are the uh, defense the security tools that are installed on it how, what can it do to combat attacks from hackers so that way it takes that information and then helps tailor a precision attack that is 
designed specifically to overwhelm that system based on what it's capable of. So what's the lesson for us all? How can we avoid falling victim to such a spear phishing campaign? It is certainly going to be tricky not to be uh, taken in by such camp, uh, campaigns mm. with the l increase in quality. And certainly they're targeting experts who are often invited to lend their ex their insights to students, journalists, etc. Yeah. But what people can still do is keep an eye out for the inconsistencies like the yonsei.lol, try and figure out what else is unusual about it. And when in doubt, try and investigate further, uh, but preferably uh, refer it to an expert, refer it to a security expert. Mm -hmm. And install some good security software on your, uh, uh, on your computer. Absolutely. Right? Some, some paid uh, security software. Just wondering, that, uh, so if you get a, um, let's say you're using a Gmail account, for example, if you get a, a Word document, you can actually preview that before downloading it. This may be beyond your technical camp, but I'll ask anyway. Does previewing a document also carry that risk of perhaps opening the malware and infecting your com uh, computer? Well, so Gmail does actually uh, usually scan these files if the malware is directly in there. So what usually is uh, going to happen is either hackers will try and install, try and send you a link from which mm. you can download the file, or if they send you the file directly, it might still be the case that the malware only activates after a certain after it's opened or closed fully. So right. it, I think they've certainly adapted to these kinds of uh, restrictions. It doesn't always work. Sometimes Gmail catches it, but okay. yeah. So if you get a suspicious link or a file, send it to someone, uh, somebody technical, and have it looked at. Uh, you have a, a comment, Jongmin? Right. Sometimes the hackers pretend like it's one link, but when they are actually linking mm. what looks like a link in right. the text, they link something else. So right, always so check link. the link yeah, first. That's right. Okay. Uh, well, thank you very much, Shreyas. Ever wondered what lies beyond the inter-Korean border? NK News brings you an opportunity to explore North Korea from a near distance. From October 8 to 17, 2023, journey with us on the second ever North Korea from a distance tour, visiting key border locations and observatories looking into North Korea, as well as meeting key figures working on DPRK issues. Spend two nights on the East Coast, see the beautiful Kumgang Mountains, scour the beaches near the inter-Korean border, and see Kim Il-sung's old summer house. Visit Yonpyongdo, the location of the November 2010 inter-Korean artillery bombardment. Observe North Korean hamlets from close quarters in Kanghua and delve deep into the heart of Seoul, the capital of South Korea. Every step of the way, you'll be guided by leading NK News and Cordial Tour staff and be joined regularly for multi-day portions of the itinerary by leading experts like Andre Lankov, Chad O'Carroll, Jongmin Kim, Jacko Zwetsuk and Gergovacci of Cordial Tours. As a special offer for our podcast listeners, quote podcast when making your booking for an exclusive 10% discount. Find out more at nknews.org slash tour. Once again, that's nknews.org slash tour and use the, the code podcast when booking. Let's journey into the unknown together. Okay, James, back to you. What is an annihilation drill? An annihilation drill. These are the drills that the US and South Korea conducted together. They started on May the 25th, and they are the uh, largest ever joint live exercises between the allies, apparently. Um, and they're still ongoing. Uh, oh. They're going to last for 
three weeks. When you say it's a live exercise, it means they're actually shooting bullets and shells, right? Oh, yeah. We've, um, we've got uh, an article on our website and we have videos of the exercise uh, being conducted on the first day. And there's lots of explosives being uh, fired into, you know, the hillside. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite large scale stuff. Now, you say this is the biggest we've ever seen before. Is this unprecedented simply in terms of scale or, or is there anything else that's new here? Apparently, yeah. I mean, it's, it's apparently the largest ever uh, joint live exercises. But, you know, we've, we've been seeing uh, these, these joint exercises being built up in scale since Joe Biden and Yoon suk Yeol replaced Donald Trump and Moon Jae-in because, um, partly because of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, these exercises were scaled down a bit. But obviously, um, Trump and Moon were trying mm-hmm. to pursue diplomacy with Kim Jong-un and Biden and Yoon aren't so into that so in the future we might continue to see even more bigger than ever before joint exercises uh, in response to North Korea's weapons development. Jongmin something to add? Right uh, first of all this was to mark the uh, the anniversary of the alliance so that's mm. why it was conducted in such a large scale ah. and just a, a quick disclaimer the here. The US Korea South Korea alliance. Yes yeah. if we compare it to like past seven decades it's mm-hmm. not the largest because it was the largest during the Park Jong-un period if you want right. to um, see look back that much um, but I think what they meant was it was the biggest ever live fire and field training exercises under this name, the mm. Annihilation Drill. Uh, the Annihilation yeah. Drill, okay. Uh, and James, what other military activities were carried out in South Korea in the months of May? Oh, there were a ton, and they're, they're being publicized a lot. They're going to continue being publicized as well, I'm sure. Mm. There's a full list in the, uh, in the month in review, isn't there? Oh, yeah, I can't. Yeah, you can check that out on the NK Pro website. I won't go through all of them, but um, I suppose one that I found quite interesting was that the US released images showing uh, officials from America, South Korea and Japan on board Mm. an Ohio class nuclear submarine near Guam. And this nuclear submarine is designed for the, uh, the stealth and the precise delivery of nuclear warheads, according to the US Navy. So uh, that's going to send quite a, a message to North Korea. Not only, you know, are, are we looking at submarines with nuclear warheads, but, um, you know, also the trilateral aspect of working yes. with Japan as well. Yeah, that's right. That, that The presence of a, uh, a Japanese commander, that's also uh, very important. Is there any indication that North Korea sees this as a threat? And if so, is it right to see it as a threat? I think, you know, any progress between South Korea strengthening its relations with the most powerful military in the world is obviously it's going to be concerning for North Korea and um, at one point during the first day of the drills as well the annihilation drills the South Koreans projected an image of Kim Jong-un onto a screen mm. um, so you know there, there's no doubt at who the enemy is right. in, the, in in this particular yeah who they're who they're aiming the how's uh, North Korea responded that uh, North Korea issued a uh, statement promising that the the U.S. And, and South Korea are going to face corresponding measures. So perhaps the the satellite launch was part of that. Perhaps we might see a, a missile launch. You know, these these activities mm. are still ongoing. Yeah, who knows? Okay. Wow. All right. Uh, thank you, James. Uh, Jongmin, Freedom for North Korea was founded. Uh, was sorry. Was found by a South Korean court back in 2020 to have posed a safety risk to people in South Korea. 
by sending anti-North Korea regime leaflets to North Korea by means of balloons. What has the Supreme Court of South Korea found in its review of this case? Right, there was a, the Supreme Court ruling in late April. It was a, it's a very significant one because it basically reverses the decision made in 2020 and afterwards. The mm-hmm. Seoul court at the time, during the Moon administration, got rid of the corporate permit for this FFNK. It's something like operation license allowing them to conduct activities as a corporate being, right. um, as an NGO. But, but it was revoked, but the Supreme Court ruled that it was unjustified for various reasons. Ah. Um, and So they have their status as a, uh, as a corporate entity once again. Yes. Okay. Is anti-regime leafleting now seen as an activity protected by freedom of expression and assembly in South Korea? Well, from Unification Ministry's point of view, interestingly, although this is a conservative unit administration, they yeah. are maintaining their position that mm. it is uh, that it should be restrained because it hurts, it damages the the safety of the border region residents. But this Supreme Court case mentions that it's not FFNK's fault that the border um, area residents are feeling that way because they are saying that the 2020 court case from the Seoul court mentioned that they are going to get rid of the corporate permit because they harm the public interest, such as the safety. But what the Supreme Court is saying that it was North Korea that posed the threat yeah. rather than the this uh, anti-leafleting uh, activist and also mentions that such activity should be protected as a freedom of speech right. uh, alongside many other reasons as well. So it's putting the responsibility for any th- security threat uh, back onto North Korea rather than the group that uh, sends the leaflets that North Korea says it's angry about. Right. It's it's not saying that it's totally not FFNK's fault, but uh-huh. saying that there are various reasons why North Korea detonated the inter-Korean liaison office in mm. 2020 and saying that FFNK led to that is, is unjust and also not proportionate measure uh-huh. um, to get rid of the corporate status. What does this mean for the anti-leafleting law more broadly? Is the law itself uh, constitutional or well, unconstitutional? Well, that's another whole case that is yeah. going on by the same group, actually. They, ah. they, are fi- they filed a lawsuit saying that uh, the, the law is unconstitutional. But what it, the Supreme Court case means is that it sets a legal precedent um, for, for future cases like this. Okay. And shortly after the court ruling, Pak Sang-hak and the fr- fighters for a free North Korea have apparently sent some 20 balloons north from Kanghua Island, west of Seoul. Tell us more about that. Well, it was uh, it was interesting because it came, I think, maybe a week after the Supreme Court case. Mm. Um, there were actually a lot of organizations that had done leafleting before, but they did uh, restrain and was cautious about revealing their identity and so on and so forth after 2020. But Pak Sang-hak used the occasion to launch them, including poster that's uh, that showed caric- caricature yes, of Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-il next to a corn-shaped rocket calling Kim Jong-un devil and an insane bastard for starving the people mm. for a nuclear missile, and it included leaflets and medicines. Now, Pak Sang-hak and his group have uh, often been criticized for showboating and not actually being too strategic about how and where they launch their balloons and doing it more for the for the symbolic creds rather than actually getting up into North Korea. Can you comment on that? Right, it, it is tr- it, it's very uh, it's true because many of uh, often the police finds out that the balloons that Park Sung-hak and his group launches did not actually reach North Korea. That's one part. Mm. And if you really want to help North Korea get the information, there are other ways 
rather than taking photos and showing mm. it to the journalists. Right. Um, and also these posters, some there are some uh, disagreements on his approach because if it's too uh, much of a poster that is that apparently insults Kim Jong-un, it would be difficult for North Korean citizens to even touch it. Mm, right, because it's a risk to them. Yeah. Right. Uh, so does it look like anti-North Korea leafleting is back on the agenda now? Uh, comparatively, maybe yes, mm. uh, but the unification ministry is maintaining its position that right. they should be restrain it. So it seems like systematically uh, it's still difficult for the activists. Has North Korea made a statement in response to the court ruling, perhaps from the mouth of Kim Yo-jong? Not yet. Mm. All no. right. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Jongmin. So, uh, Shreyas, we end our uh, roundtable podcast on a lighter story today, uh, one that our listeners who are from North America may appreciate just as much as those who are in North Korea. Why would a group of mostly Commonwealth expats living in Shanghai want to take a cricket to North Korea, and what would they do with that cricket? Well, as with many great adventures, it began over drinks at a pub 15 mm-hmm. years ago, when the leaders of the Shanghai Cr- Cricket Club were brainstorming ideas for their next overseas tour. They had previously played in locations ranging from England, the home of the sport, to places where the game is barely known, like Japan. But now they wanted something truly unique. And at this point, one member came up with the idea of North Korea. And despite other skepticism, they were somehow able to arrange an unofficial tournament with the help of Korea Tours, which facilitates holidays in the isolated country. Uh-huh. Okay, so this is uh, cricket the sport, not cricket the uh, the noise-making insect. Indeed. So okay. cricket is <laughs> played in over 100 countries, but only it doesn't play it at the highest level. Yeah. And inevitably, it is mostly played in Commonwealth countries as the British introduced the game to its colonies. So it's practically unknown in North Korea. It is a bat and ball game mm-hmm. where the objective is to score more runs than the opponent. In that sense, it is perhaps similar to baseball, although purists of both games would probably balk at the comparison. And games can be quite long, can't they? Oh, yes. Uh, so in the most traditional format of the game, it can go last as long as five days. Good God. But in the case of the tournament that went to Pyongyang, it was then new and abbreviated format called 2020, where each game can get over in a few hours, which by cricket standards is express. Yes. yes. And when did this uh, tournament happen? So this is in 2008. At this point, bear in mind, North Korea was still on the axis of evil. Yeah. Uh, so it was certainly not an easy task to get there. Right, right. Okay. So it's, it's uh, yeah, as you say, fi- uh, well, gosh, 16 years ago, it's ancient history now, uh, 15 years ago, sorry. W- why is it interesting to talk about this? Uh, well, I think th- essentially it was a one-off. It yeah. was also just the most bizarre occurrence. This is not a sport that would particularly translate well to North Korea, That well, at least that one would think of. It is a game with which is rooted in colonialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is which something that North Korea often rails against. And certainly it is to people who aren't used to it, not the most exciting, given how long uh, mm. drawn out it is. But it was a one-off, that, so in that sense, it was still a remarkable adventure. Now, India's a, a, cric- a big cricketing power, uh, and India has a, uh, uh, an embassy in, in North Korea. Were they uh, involved in this, uh, or do they have their own cricket league? So, in, no, it, unfortunately, when the teams went there, uh, Korea Tours actually invited the embassies of the cricket-playing nations. Mm. Oh, what other ones are there? I, I was only so only the British embassy, ah, the course. UK embassy rather, uh, right. turned up. Small team though. Yeah, well, th- so they didn't play, but essentially they were there to uh, help. They arranged a picnic, lunch and tea time for the players. 
made up of cucumber sandwiches, a unique English catering yes. tradition, and one that certainly would have confused a lot of the locals. <laughs> uh, now th- I understand this event had a commercial sponsor. Which company was that, and why would they sponsor such a thing during such a you know that that uh, time when North Korea was really uh, yeah on the axis of evil? It was a pariah. So there wasn't an official sponsor, at least on paper, but DHL effectively served as an unofficial sponsor after helping transport an artificial cricket pitch on which the game was played. Gosh. And this came about thanks to the involvement of DHL's local representative in Pyongyang, whom one Shanghai Cricket Club member described as a big student of North Korean sport. Mm. And in exchange, the company got to splash its logo over caps and shirts worn by the players. Okay, and it was a one-off event. Has there been any interest uh, in North Korea of repeating this or setting up a local cricket league where the, where the locals fascinated by the game? So while the tournament did help introduce the sport to some locals, including a few who even played for a newly assembled Pyongyang Cricket Club, mm. for the most part, most people have no idea it ever happened. This event was not organized, it, so it probably didn't raise much awareness in the country about the game. And honestly, uh, I think it's not the kind of sport that North Korea would, uh, the regime would usually introduce to its citizens and try to make a big deal of. So at this point, it does seem unlikely that the game will return to the country anytime soon, but ah, one never knows. One never knows. Okay, well, thank you very much, Shreyas Reddy. Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro News and Analysis Service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? The absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org podcast. My thanks go to Jongmin Kim, James Fretwell, and Shreyas Reddy for joining me here on the podcast for the monthly roundtable here in the studio. So thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Our thanks, as always, to Brian Betts and Arias Dare for facilitating this podcast and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and puts in the ads. Thank you very much for listening again next time. Yeah.